Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. So that was a, a wonderful, nice, heavy passage for us, but I promise I have really good news to share with you all today. Good news worth celebrating. Um, so we'll get there. I'm not going to go verse by verse through that passage, but we'll get to the good stuff. But I want to start with a quote from Confucius. Uh, I hear and I forget. I see and I remember. I do and I understand. This Confucius quote is a simple yet profound statement on the learning process. If we merely hear about something, we may remember for a little while, but pretty soon we'll forget. If we see something with our own eyes, we have a much higher chance of remembering. But if we get the chance to do something with our own hands, we can begin to understand it and really learn in an embodied way. The more that we do something, the more we understand it. It's like riding a bike. The first few times feel almost impossible, but eventually you get the hang of it and you don't even have to think about it. You just get on the bike and ride. But it takes practice, right? That's why when it comes to learning something, it's, it's, it's not only that you need to do it, but the only thing better than doing it is doing it over and over again, doing it repeatedly. And yet, at the same time, if we repeat things too often, if we, if we just do them over and over and over again, they can begin to feel boring or meaningless, right? We can very easily forget the significance of what we're doing. This can happen in so many areas of our lives, but especially in our spiritual lives, with our, with our religious practices. Think about it. We just sang some songs this morning, read scripture, prayed together. For some of you, this may have felt very meaningful and moving. And for others, if you're honest, it felt like going through the motions. That's okay. No judgment on either side of those spectrums. It's normal. It happens to many of us, especially people who've been part of church for a long time. And it even happens when you have rock star worship leaders like Missy and Trevor leading you in worship. You know, I mean, that banjo, come on. Um, but seriously, when we feel like we're just going through the motions, which happens, happens to many of us, we need to remember the value of what we're doing, the songs, the prayers, coming to the communion table. The value is not merely in these practices themselves, but in the way these practices transform us over time. It's not just the experience of the thing. It's the way that thing transforms us over time. So this is the final week of a series we've been doing for, for three weeks, and we've been looking at three dimensions of, of one Christian practice that goes by different names depending who you ask. The Lord's Supper, Communion, the Eucharist. Two weeks ago, we looked at the Lord's Supper as an act of embodied remembrance. Every time we receive the Lord's Supper, we remember God's liberation of the people of Israel at Passover and the liberation that we receive from Jesus, from the new Lamb of God, right? Last week, Pastor Melissa looked at communion and how it's really an act of participation in Christ and in one another, in the community of God. And today we're going to look at the Eucharist. 
the Eucharist. This name might feel a little less familiar or kind of high church to some of us, but it's actually the most commonly used name for what we often call communion around the world today. Scott McKnight, who we've used throughout this sermon, has this witty quote about the Eucharist. He says, the biggest problem with the Eucharist is we don't do it often enough. Why? Because despite the potential danger of what I talked about earlier, things becoming empty, meaningless, just going through the motions, despite all that, repetition matters. Any musicians here, right? You practice scales. You, you have to learn the basics over and over again before you can learn a song. And if you want to perform that song, you play it over and over again. Athletes, they do drills. They go to practice. I, don't, I wouldn't understand this, but they get better uh, over time. They don't just go and show up to the game, right? The Eucharist, in the same way, must be repeated, and over time it can transform us. That's why we do this practice every single week and why I believe in some way it can happen in in every other aspect of our lives if we would allow it. Um, But in the words of James K.A. Smith, there is no formation without repetition. So the beauty of the Eucharist is not only this opportunity we have for embodied remembrance of of Christ's death and resurrection for us. It's not only the communion that we get to experience with one another and with God around this table. The beauty of the Eucharist is the way that it transforms us more and more into people of Christ-like love. It transforms us, but how? In Henry Nouwen's beautiful book called The Life of the Beloved, it's a skinny little book, I highly remember, uh, recommend it. He, the whole book is based around this paradigm that influenced the name for this series, um, and I think it's important for us to understand this paradigm. Here's what he writes. When Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, he summarized in these gestures his own life. Jesus is chosen from all eternity, blessed at his baptism in the Jordan River, broken on the cross, and given as bread to the world. Being chosen, blessed, broken, and given is the sacred journey of the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. When we take bread bless it, break it, and give it with the words, this is the body of Christ, we express our commitment to make our lives conform to the life of Christ. We too want to live as people blessed, broken, and given for the world. The Eucharist helps us become people who are blessed, broken, and given for the sake of others. Like Jesus, we too are blessed because we've been created by a good God who calls us beloved children. We too are broken. We don't, we don't need to really convince each other of that because of the wrongs that we've done and the wrong we see that has been caused all around the world and the wrong that's been caused to us. But we too are given because our lives are conformed to the one who gave his life all the way to the point of death for the life of the world. So this morning, I want to look at how the Eucharist transforms us. This sounds great, but let's get into some of the specifics. How does this practice of receiving the blessed, broken, and given body of Jesus form us into people of Christ-like love? There are many ways this happens, but for the sake of our time today, I want to look at three shifts that the Eucharist can bring about in our life. 
First, the Eucharist can transform us from people of entitlement to people of gratitude. Second, from apathy to celebration. And third, from distraction to presence. So let's begin with gratitude. The word Eucharist, if you were, you're not going to find it in the English Bible, but if you could go back to the original Greek, it would be right in there. Um, I didn't feel like Googling it and finding it. It's like Eucharisteo, something along those lines. But the word Eucharist comes straight from the gospel accounts of the Last Supper. Jesus took bread and gave thanks uh, for that bread, right? He blessed that bread. That's the word Eucharist. So this literal translation of this word gave thanks is the word Eucharist. Early followers of Jesus, therefore, began calling this practice of eating bread, drinking wine together, uh, a Eucharist, a thanksgiving meal, a time to give thanks. And what this shows us is that this meal is more like a Thanksgiving feast than like, uh, I don't know, a lunch that we share after a funeral. It's a time to taste and see God's goodness and give thanks for it. That's why the writer John Harden calls the Eucharist the supreme act of Christian gratitude to God. But we live in an age of entitlement, which is the great enemy of gratitude. It's impossible to be grateful for something if I feel like I inherently deserve it. But false entitlement, at the end of the day, it really leads to a greater sense of discontentment and unrest. Because if we don't get something that we feel like we deserve, whether it's a promotion at work or a romantic relationship or a night out with friends after a long week, if we don't get that thing we think we deserve, we're not just ungrateful, we're downright upset about it. But the Eucharist teaches us to give thanks in all situations. We did not create the world and we cannot control it, but we are beloved children of God and we can trust that God is with us no matter what. In that sense, we don't so much root our gratitude in the things God has given us, but in God alone. Not merely in the gifts of God, but in the giver of those gifts himself. That's why I love Adele Calhoun's definition of gratitude. She says, gratitude is a loving and thankful response toward God for his presence with us and within the world. Though blessings can move us into gratitude, it is not the root of a thankful heart. Delight in God and his goodwill is the heartbeat of thankfulness. Delight in God is the heartbeat of thankfulness. Whether we're receiving at the communion table or in our everyday lives, delight in God is, is, it simply means noticing that everything is a gift from God. To use the beautiful words of James 1, 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. But do we actually notice these gifts? Or are we too busy or distracted to really receive them? We have to learn to slow down and, and really notice and savor the gifts that God desires to give us. 
Over the past few months, um, Shannon and I have been trying to be a little bit more intentional on our uh, Sabbath day of rest and, and having people over for dinner on the Sabbath. And one of the things we do at this Sabbath dinner is a form of gratitude called dayenu. Dayenu is a Hebrew word that means it would have been enough. And it comes from a song that Israel would sing to celebrate the Passover. So it's fitting for our discussion of, of the Eucharist. Um, and, and many Jews still sing this song today at Passover. Um, but how we practice it is we all go around and share stories um, or just something that God did, whether it's something big or small, where God not only met our needs, but God went above and beyond. And I'm honest, sometimes it's hard. It's hard to think, where did God show up and, and, and go above and beyond this week or this year or this place in my life? But sometimes if you just slow down and recognize a really small thing, you can notice God's abundant generosity, even in the most ordinary places of life. My new gratitudes almost always revolve around food um, because yeah, I'll tell you why in a second. Um, so, so this would be an example. This could be something that you might do with friends and you share. It would have been enough to have my brother call me, but we got to talk for an hour, right? You could do that and share that, or you could do it as a prayer. So I wrote this as, a, as just a simple prayer of gratitude from last week. God, it would have been enough to have rice and beans for dinner, but we got to feast on chips and guacamole and shredded chicken tacos. God, it would have been enough to have this delicious meal alone, but I got to share it with friends who care about me deeply. God, it would have been enough to have this meal with friends, but they stayed and helped clean up as we continued our meaningful conversations. Do you see how it's a small, simple thing that happened to me this last Wednesday night, but it's a way for God to reveal God's abundance and generosity. It's a picture of how gratitude can pour into every area of our lives when we just pay attention to God wanting to bless us in simple, ordinary things. Every good and perfect gift is from above. We just have to notice them. And the Eucharist, it's this moment that teaches us to, to give thanks, not only for these gifts of bread and wine, but for the greatest gift of all. Jesus, right? This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. And that posture of gratitude flows from the communion table into every day of our lives. So that's, that's gratitude. And that leads us to the second shift that the Eucharist can bring about in our lives. We can be transformed from people of apathy to people of celebration. I think celebration is really the natural overflow of gratitude. It's simply gratitude on display, right? Think about it. If you're really, really grateful, it just flows out of you in Thanksgiving, in celebration. In his classic book, Celebration of Discipline, author Richard Foster points out why we struggle with celebration. Written nearly 50 years ago, his words ring as true as if they were written yesterday. The carefree spirit of joyous festivity is absent in co contemporary society. Apathy, even melancholy, dominate the times. Harvey Cox says that modern man has been pressed so hard toward useful work and rational calculation, he has all but forgotten the joy of ecstatic celebration. 
Apathy is that feeling we, we have when we just don't care about something. It's that thing that's not interesting or worth getting excited or enthusiastic about. It's this thing that, if we're honest, we're too cool to really be excited and enthusiastic about that thing. And you can't celebrate something if you don't actually care about it. You can pretend to celebrate. We've all done that. But that usually does more harm than good. But I, I think in some sense, many of us have moved a little bit beyond apathy, and we think we know how to celebrate. I mean, we live in the city of Chicago, after all, with our weekday happy hours and Friday nights out with friends. We do not need much of an excuse to plan a good celebration. You've got birthdays, graduations, housewarmings, going away parties. We know how to sell, how to put on a celebration. But there's a difference See this, there's a difference between indulgence and celebration. While sometimes they can look similar, indulgence and celebration are not the same thing. Overindulgence is having one too many glasses of wine and waking up the next morning with a headache. Overindulgence is eating so much that it hurts. Not that that's ever happened to me, um, but, but it's, it's eating so much that it hurts and then leaving the restaurant and ignoring the person sitting there on the sidewalk asking for food. Overindulgence is what the Apostle Paul called out. He called it a blatant abuse of the Lord's Supper. Listen to this, what we just read earlier, what Kristen read for us. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Some of these Corinthians had nothing to eat while others indulged to the point of drunkenness. I want us to really see what was going on here because this feels so foreign to us and how we do church, right? We sit in pews and look at a stage for our worship gatherings, but the Corinthians were gathered around tables for worship. The less privileged Corinthians sat hungry with nothing to eat or drink while the rich ones were feasting and getting drunk. We walk forward when it's time for communion and we get a small piece of bread that we dip in juice. Or since we felt a little edgy, wanted to spice things up for this series, you can dip it in the real stuff today. But seriously, do you see the difference? Do you see the chasm here between, I'm not saying we need to go back in time and, and do things exactly like they did, but I want us to see how we've removed any chance for indulgence and celebration from our version of the Lord's Supper. No passing around full glasses of wine and opening another bottle when it runs empty. Just a sip of juice. Not a full plate full of food and a meal to share with a chance to get up and grab seconds, just a piece of bread. We've removed the potential danger for overindulgence, and in so doing, we've removed the feeling of celebration. But Paul didn't tell them to stop sharing a meal or put away the wine when they gathered together. He told them to make sure everyone in their community had access to these good gifts of God because they are one body in Christ. In other words, he told them to continue to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but to avoid overindulgence. Don't overeat and get drunk while others go hungry, but share, share these good gifts of God with one another. 
Celebrating the Eucharist is not about throwing a lavish, over-the-top, exclusive dinner party with my carefully chosen friends. It's about breaking down the barriers that so often divide us, even in the church, race, politics, economic status, and so on. Philip Yancey paints a picture of how we might move from this fear of indulgence to a true celebration of what's really going on when we come to the table. He says this, this table is different. It isn't where sinners find Christ, but where sons and daughters celebrate being found. Maybe someday, instead of solemnly making our way to the table, we should dance for joy. Maybe we should sing every born-again song we know. Maybe we should tell our homecoming stories and laugh like people who no longer fear death. Maybe we should ask if anyone wants seconds and hold our little cups high to toast lost sinners found and dead brothers and sisters alive. That's the biggest difference between celebration and overindulgence. Celebration like gratitude is rooted in God. It's rooted in who God is, what God has done for us, and what God is doing right here and now in our lives. And just like Israel celebrated the Passover to remember God's liberating power, we celebrate the Eucharist to remember that we are beloved children of God. We were lost, but now we're found. We were dead now we're alive. We were strangers, and now we're family. Shouldn't this make us shout for joy, dance like no one is watching, or sing our favorite songs at the top of our lungs? Or are we just too cool for that? St. Augustine once said, the Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. He means that our whole lives should be shouts of praise and celebration for our loving God. The Eucharist can form us into people who celebrate God's goodness, not only on Sunday mornings, I mean, this is great, but in every moment of our lives. In her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, Tish Harrison Warren, it's a great book, by the way, if you haven't read it, um, she looks back on just an ordinary day in her life as a mother, and she devotes a whole chapter of the book, a whole chapter, to the act of reheating soup for lunch. Could anything be more boring than reheating soup for lunch? But she gives her book a whole chapter. Um, But as she reheats her soup, she remembers her many years of receiving the Eucharist in church week after week. The way that she meets God or has met God in the Eucharist, it, it, it makes her able to see that something deeper is happening as she reheats her lunch. Here's what she says. The Eucharist is the Thanksgiving feast of the church, and it is out of that communal practice of Thanksgiving that my lunchtime prayer of thanks flows. The Eucharist, our gathered meal of thanksgiving for the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, transforms each humble meal into a moment to recall that we receive all of life from soup to salvation by grace. As such, these daily moments are sacramental, not because they're sacraments themselves, but because God meets us in and through the earthy material world in which we dwell. God meets us in the earthy material world in which we dwell. So that leads us to the final shift that the Eucharist can bring about in our lives, the shift from distraction to presence. 
God wants to be present to us in the earthy material world in which we dwell, but many of us are too distracted to realize it. From the smartphone to the television, we are bombarded by noise like never before. There are external distractions outside of us, like living in a noisy city or just having young children at home, all these different distractions around us. But then there's those internal distractions in our own minds, those thoughts that we have or um, that urge we have to, to pick up our phone, right? There's, there's just these things that go on inside of us, all the noise. I mean, we live in a world that competes for our attention, right? Our jobs and schools demand attention. Our relationships demand attention. How many times this morning have you felt that little device buzz in your pocket as if politely asking for your attention? And here I am, of course, hoping that you're paying attention, right? With all the noise that competes for our attention, it can be easy to become unaware of what we're actually trying to focus on in the first place. It's not that we occasionally lose focus here or there. Our general posture in life could be described as distracted. We must recover the art of attentiveness. And as Christians, this means that we must not only recover what it means to pay attention in general, but how do we pay attention to God? The Eucharist teaches us how to pay attention to God. We learn to be present to God in our midst. We learn to be present to the people around us. We learn to be present to our own selves in this embodied moment. Presence is what the Eucharist is all about. Listen to this from David Fitch in his book, Faithful Presence. The Lord's table is about presence. Surely it is about eating, but ultimately it's a discipline that shapes a group of people to be present to God's presence in Christ. If we can recognize his presence at work around the table, we will be able to recognize his work in the rest of our lives as well. It's one thing for us to recognize God's presence on Sundays when we approach the communion table and receive the elements together. But what about on Wednesday nights when we gather with our friends or our gospel community? Or what about after a long day at work or taking care of the kids when we barely have enough energy to cook a meal and sit down for dinner together? Or what about when I'm working from home day after day eating lunch at my desk alone? I'm not saying this is easy, but in some mysterious way, those very moments can become sacramental or or Eucharistic when we are present to God in those moments. They can remind us that Jesus was blessed, broken, and given for us and for the world. They can remind us that we too are blessed, broken, and given for the sake of the world. This is what we all deeply need and desire to receive our blessedness, to accept our brokenness, and to be given away for the sake of others. Presence looks like being mindful of the people we're with and their needs and desires above our own. Presence looks like developing an awareness that God is already at work in every situation that we're in. Presence looks like seeing every meal that we eat, whether it's with our church family or with the hurting world around us, as an opportunity 
It's an opportunity to give thanks to the God who was blessed, broken, and given for us. That God can transform us from people of entitlement to gratitude, from people of apathy to celebration, from people of distraction to people who are present. Through a simple act of receiving the Eucharist, we can be formed, we can be blessed, broken, and given for others. And as we wrap this whole thing up, that's, that's where I want to leave us. What does it look like for you to be given for others? Put all this aside for a moment. How can you give your life away like Jesus gave his life away, right? Not only his death, not only his resurrection, but every day of his life was, was an opportunity to give of himself for the sake of others. What does it look like for you to be given for the sake of others? I'll close um, with these words from Henry Nouwen just to spark our minds and, and ask the spirit to, to speak to us. What does it look like for me to give myself away? Um, Henry Nouwen says, our humanity comes to its fullest bloom in giving. We become beautiful people when we give whatever we can give, a smile, a handshake, an embrace, a word of love, a part of our life, all of our life. Our greatest fulfillment lies in giving ourselves to others. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the blessing we receive um, in, in being created and made by you and for you and being called your beloved sons of daughters, uh, sons and daughters, just like Jesus is your beloved son. We thank you for that. Um, God, we acknowledge and confess our brokenness, the, the brokenness we've caused in this world and the brokenness that has been caused to us and done to us. We just acknowledge that and confess that and lament that. But Lord, we ask that through noticing your presence in the simple act of receiving communion, um, help us to see that you can bless us and break us and give us for the sake of others, that we can give ourselves as a gift like you gave yourself as a gift. We need your spirit's help. We can't do this alone. So fill us, empower us, renew us to, to be your given bread for the sake of the world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.